Well, I'm getting used to this pulpit now, and uh, it's, a, it's a very, very nice pulpit to preach from. I want to draw your attention to Hebrews and the first chapter. And if we look at verse 3, who being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, and then this, these words particularly, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This is one of those great verses in the Bible that you all ought to know. And it was at your fingertips. And it's a neglected verse. Um, it's one of those foundation verses. And when you understand it, you'll never let it go. So the first one, question I want to ask is, who is this one um, who we are told has purged our sins? And the answer comes from the context in a number of ways. Um, he's the one through whom God has spoken to us. God speaks. God speaks in creation. The heavens declare the, the glory of, of God. Um, and that's his power and might and beauty. Uh, and then God speaks to everybody through our consciences. The great monitor that God has placed in human beings, not in animals, but he has given us all a conscience that rebukes us when we do what's wrong and commends us when we do what is right. And then there's a special revelation. God has spoken through Moses and the prophets, and the Lord Jesus um, speaks of that revelation, and he says it can't be broken, and thus saith the Lord. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but not these words. And then um, he speaks by his Son. God has a Son, an only begotten Son. And everything a father has, a son has. Let's have a little imaginative uh, description of um, two men who've, whose wives have just had baby boys. And they go to the maternity wing of the local hospital. And they look through the big uh, glass wall there at the cribs uh, where their two newborn boys are lying sleeping. And the one... Uh, Man says to the other man, my son is 97% human. And uh, his friend says, my son is 98% human. Well, of course, that's pure imagination. That doesn't happen. We are 100% human beings. And our sons and daughters are 100% human beings, too. God is 100% divine, and his son is also 100% divine. And that son speaks, Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, the wonderful Sermon on the Mount. That son prayed the great prayer in John 17. And that son made great claims. I and my father are one. I am the way and the truth and the life. 
He is God manifestly seen, heard. Heaven's beloved one has come to this earth. Um, this one who has purged our sins is the speaking God. He is and he is not silent. And then um, he's the one who made the universe. Verse 2, by whom also he made the worlds. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made by him. Without him anything was made that was made. For he made all things visible and invisible. Men are so fascinated with origins, aren't they? And they have no certainty and they have no, no, no assurance of a big bang. And they have many theories. And then there is this staggering claim that this one who one day was thirsty and sat on the wall around the well asked the woman of Sakhar if uh, she would um, give him uh, uh, water to drink. He held a baby in his arms and prayed for God to bless. He was crucified on Golgotha. He made the forest from whence there sprung the tree on which his body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet made the hill on, on which it stood. So the vastness of space, he made it. The minuteness of the atom, he made it. There's nothing malicious in the world at all. There are no booby traps in the exploration of the depths of the sea or the depths of the earth or sending rockets in to examine the cosmos. It's benign. We can face it all fearlessly. What is Einstein? Well, Einstein is the ruins of an atom. That's all. And the most sophisticated modern laboratory is the rubbish of paradise. Christ made everything. Christ is relevant to everything. To the outdoors, God put the first atom in a garden. To the indoors, the second Adam, he worked in a workshop making wooden ledges and poles and tables and window frames. He is the one, then, who purged our sins, the God who speaks, the creator of the universe. And we're told he's the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his being. He's the brightness, the brightness of God's glory. He's not a little candle and that the brightness is somewhere else. The very brightness, the most glorious things about God are to be seen in Jesus Christ. When after being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the most divine and glorious thing that Jesus Christ ever said. The seraphim hide their eyes when they look at him. And there's the glory of his mercy that the very chief of sinners is forgiven and pardoned. And the rainbow, when it appears, reminds us of the mercy of, of God. He shows the brightness of his glory and he is the express image of his person. He is the exact transcript. You remember in the office, the old photocopier was 
not very accurate. And one day, two engineers turned up with a trolley and they, they rolled into the office there, uh, a brand new photocopier. And uh, the man had two pieces of, he had a piece of paper and uh, full of interesting patterns. They unscrewed the parts, they plugged it in, and then they pushed the, the button and almost straight away out came the copy. And then he took out the original. Now, he said, can you tell? Can you tell which is which? It was almost an exact transcript of the original. Well, you could have had a magnifying class and worked it out, but Jesus Christ is the express image. This is God. If you've seen me, you have seen my Father, he says. God is love, and I see Jesus on his knees washing the feet of the disciples. I see him on the cross in agony, speaking to the dying thief and speaking to his mother, and the whole likeness of God's love is there. This is the heart of God. The most godlike thing that God ever did was Calvary, the broken body of Jesus. That's where we see the brightness of God's glory most wonderfully. This is the one that this verse is talking about. He, he by himself purged our sins. God the Son, the speaking God, the creator of this universe, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. So secondly, what did he do? Well, he purged our sins. He came into the closest contact with these people uh, whose forefathers then God had spoken to by the prophets and to whom he came and he preached to them. He lived among them. He was anointed and baptized and off he went, a mission of evangelism to Galilee and then to Jerusalem preaching to thousands of people. And he came into contact with their sins. He brushed against them. Their sin could have contaminated others. It didn't contaminate him. They had other gods before him, but he had him as his God. They took his name in vain. He didn't. They had sins and they defiled them. Uh, sins made you dirty so that uh, you needed to be washed. Um, I'd go to church with my mother. My mother would make tomato soup for me on a Sunday afternoon and then we'd go to church together and just before we got there she'd have a look at me and look at my face and she'd see a ring of tomato soup and she'd bring out a hanky. She'd say, spit on this now. And then she'd clean up my face if I was going to sit nice to my nicely dressed mother in church. Then I had to be... A, presentable to the other members of the congregation. Well, my friends, with our sin, we need a little more than spittle to wash us and cleanse us. What, what can wash away our sin? Uh, you know the answer. It's the blood of Jesus that does that. It's his, it's his cross. In other words, when you sin, you, you feel defiled. You feel dirty. Once the doorbell went in the manse in Wales and I answered it and there was a man there. I recognized him around town. He wanted to talk to me. And he asked me if I could baptize him. 
I'd never seen him before. He told me how he had gone to Canada to live for a while and he lived with a woman and she became pregnant and she'd had a, an abortion. He felt the, the defilement of that. He felt it. And nothing seemed to cleanse his conscience. So could he be baptized? And I spoke to him and uh, I told him how it's an, an outward and a visible act. And that what he needed was an inward reality that would just show itself. And I told him about how Jesus had come into the world then to cleanse us from our sins. And that it was a real cleansing. Our sins, though they are scarlet, can be as white as snow. I said, you come to church now, and then he started to come, come to church to hear the gospel. There's a cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. He's done something for our sins. That's what it says here. Our sins. Whose sins? Well, to whom is the author of the Hebrews writing? He's not writing to the Sanhedrin. He's not writing to the philosophers of Greece. He, he's writing to Jewish men and women who become Christians, who've come to Jesus Christ for refuge and, and redemption. And uh, our sins, he says, mine too. He stands in solidarity with these people to whom he's writing. And he's saying uh, there is this constituency, a definitive, a particular constituency, a limited constituency. It's not a public letter. It's not a promiscuous letter. It's a letter to a church, to the followers of Jesus Christ. He writes to the Corinthians, Christ died for our sins. He writes to the Ephesians, Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. He writes, Paul writes to the Galatians, he loved me and he gave himself for me. It's so particular, it's so definitive, it's a total, absolute cleansing for all who've been washed of their sins. Not to those who died in Noah's flood, but to those who say, my sins. To us who say in this congregation, our sins, and when we pray, we say, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Our total answer to our guilt and shame is, the Lamb of God came. Behold, he takes away not just the sins of the Jews, but the sins of men and women in the whole world. He made an effective purgation. Now, do you see... You see the implications of that for you. That it means my sins are now as though they never were. It's a magnificent, it's an incredible concept that our sins do not control or modify our relationship with God this morning. It is as if they didn't exist. So there is no defilement. It's all been removed. He has taken our past sin, taken our present sin, taken our future sin. 
and he's put it away. He's provided a purification for it. We are whiter than snow. I'm not sure that my conscience believes this. I'm not sure that there is in me some egotism that wants to cling in self-pity to some remnants of guilt so that I can feel sorry for myself. If I only let this truth be the whole truth concerning the way things are between me and God this morning, that there's no barrier whatsoever, that there's no impediment, it is all forgiven, it is all forgotten, it is all blotted out. You know, I may even sometimes use a vague belief that uh, one day I must go to purgatory, and there in purgatory, um, all the, uh, the guilt that has not yet been purged and cleansed and washed away there for hundreds or thousands of years, depending on whether uh, Mass is said for me and I've paid enough that it's said every day, every week, and my family pray for me, and then finally, finally I can escape from it. I'm saying, it is all forgiven. I'm saying, he's purged it all. He's borne it all, all the guilt. Every single sin was imputed to him. It doesn't say we laid on him the iniquity of us all. He did, the God who knows about sin, he laid upon his son the iniquity of us all. The single determinant of your relationship with God this morning is what happened on that cross. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is relevant. There are only two factors in the equation, what Christ did and how God responded and how you feel and how you struggle and what you achieve and how you fail, that is irrelevant. The one thing that is relevant to you and your relationship with God and your eternity this morning is what Christ did on the cross. And I do not for a moment believe that the heart that knows that will take advantage of it and go to live a life without law, without love for the precepts of God. Because that cross, that grace, it won't permit you. I believe on the contrary that uh, a bad conscience, conscience or feeling that God has something against you. It, and, and that you've got to pay for it one day. I think that develops an unconscious grudge against God that somehow justifies you being less than perfect, that permits a relapse here. A shortcoming there. A longer look at that woman then you should give your hand in the till when no one's looking. I want you to know in the depth of your own being 
that Jesus Christ made a good and decent and proper job of the work that God gave him to do, that he has made a real purging of all your sin who've gone to him for refuge and mercy. You consider who he is, the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person, and at the climax of his life, he set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. He had a task, he had a vocation. He was walking with destiny, with your destiny, and my destiny. And he was going to Golgotha, and he was going to deal with sin. He was going to deal with his defilement, the way it spoils us as teenagers, as young marrieds, as older people, the way it corrupts and mars us, the way God hates it, and he creates a gulf. And he comes, he who healed every sickness, and the winds and waves obeyed him, and he raised the dead, he came, Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, Jehovah Christ came, and there was one more thing he had to do before he could say, it is finished. He had to purge our sins. He had to take the defilement, the dirtiness that corrupts everything, the guilt of every failure. He had to take it into the judgment of fire. He had to stand in the naked flame of the holy justice of God until it was all destroyed forever. All the foulness, and it leaves us de-sinned, without spot, not one, without a blemish, not one, any such thing, as sinless as God is sinless, as free from any stain as God himself. Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow, you may be today. And you see the consequence of that. The consequence of that is that the dying of Jesus is purgatory. Golgotha is the only purgatory this world or the world to come will ever know. There is no need of another purging. Because there is absolutely nothing left to purge because of the power and breadth and length and height and depth of the saving love of God in Jesus Christ. He is able to keep us from falling into hell and to present us faultless before God in that great day. When he spoke to the dying thief, he didn't say, after a hundred years in purgatory, you will be with me in paradise. He said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't do half a job on the cross. He didn't do 90% of the job and leave us to do the 10% of, of the rest. He did it. He has purged. Our sins, this is what the text I am preaching to you says to us. And it says he did it by himself, by what he was. What was he doing? Well, he was offering himself without spot to God. 
He wasn't offering his human nature. He wasn't offering his sufferings only. He wasn't offering his blood only. He wasn't offering his obedience only. God the Son, the God-man Christ Jesus, was offering himself. God's lamb to take away our sin. The ransom price, he is, and he's paid it. The propitiation that changes God's attitude to us and propitiates it and appeases it and placates it so he loves us as he loves his own son. He has achieved that. The great satisfaction rendered to God, the price of our liberation, there is nothing left undone that you have to discover and do it to gain mercy from God. He made a purging for our sins. He did it not by enabling you to do something. He did it not by inspiring you to choose. He did it not by challenging you to discipleship. He did it not by exhorting you to believe. He did it not by commanding you to live a holy life. He did it not by pleading with you to show more love and compassion to your fellow men. Because if my standing before God this moment depends on any of those things, I'm a ruined man. If my faith and my repentance and my compassion before God wins me God's favor, I've no hope. He did it. He did it all. He did it by himself. There were no angels that came to him as they were after the temptation or after Gethsemane to cheer him. He was there. No friend, no one catching his eye and saying, I know what you're doing. I know why you're hanging there. I bless you. Hallelujah. What a savior. There was no one there. He was by himself. He was adequate by himself. He was all conqueror, all sufficient, the great achiever by himself. What could be more glorious? What could be more liberating than that? That there's been a real and total purging of our sin, which he accomplished, which he did by himself. And then we are told he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then he's presented to us as a sitting saviour. Now, that's an interesting concept. You know it, don't you? You know your husband's had a hard day's work. He was up early and off, and now he's back, and he lets himself in. Hello, he says, I'm back again. Oh, sit down. I've just got the food on. You sit there now, and the food will be ready, and in a quarter of an hour, and he picks up the paper, but in five minutes he's sleeping in the chair. He's sitting because he's worked and finished the day's work. It means this, you know, in original creation, in the work of creation, 
day by day, God says, good. It was good. He said, let there be light. There was light. Good. He said, uh, let, me, let me bring forth uh, then the heavens and the firmament. That's good. Let me bring both the sea and the, and the earth. That's good. Sun and the moon, and that's good. He says, let me bring forth the birds and the fishes, and that's good. And then he says, let me bring forth the animals. And finally, man, in my image and likeness, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Today, this moment, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are looking at the whole travail of redemption, all the pain, all the suffering, all the anathema, the bloodshed, the obedience of the Son of God, and they are all absolutely contented. Very good, the triune God says. The most glorious reality in heaven and earth today, that Jesus Christ is completely pleased with the work that he has done. That he looks at his own work and he says, very good. And he sits down. And God the Father looks at the obedience of his Son, and he rests. And the Holy Spirit looks at the achievements of the Son of God, and he's at peace. And the angels of glory, they look, they can't believe their eyes. The spirits of just men made perfect cast their crowns before him. They're lost in wonder, love, and praise. Indeed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are filled with praise and joy. And the terrible thing is that everybody is pleased with it except you. You feel, yeah, but I've got to add a little bit of myself sometimes. A little bit of Christian experience. A few marks of grace. A little growth. A little suffering for the gospel. A little opposition from your family because of your Christian faith. A little witnessing. Um, you won't come empty-handed. You sing the words, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. But you want to make your contribution too, to your salvation. You won't come alone. You, you want other things to bring. Your stewardship, 
your generosity, your faithful reading of the Bible every day. You want these things to count now. You're not sitting down. You're not surveying the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died on your richest gain you count but loss and pour contempt on all this pride of yours. You're not resting in the work of Jesus Christ. But that's what God the Son did, and that's what God the Father did, and that's what the Holy Spirit did. They were all totally content with the saving achievement and accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the angels in glory, they are content. They they worship and adore him. And all those who are in the presence of God, they just are filled with thankfulness and praise that they are there. When God said to them, why should I let you into my heaven? Because of Jesus, they said. Jesus only because he is my saviour. He is my Lord because of what he achieved, not because of anything. I achieved because ego was there. Imperfection was there in the best things that I did. It's the Lamb who is worthy. It's the Lamb who is praised. You know, there's nothing more glorious in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more that it magnifies but him. That's why the Bible is such a magnificent book. That's why we had it read to us. That's why you've got your own copies and read it. And when you gather here, the climactic aspect of worship is opening the book and finding the page like he did in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and then having that word come, not in word only, but power and the Holy Ghost and with much assurance, which magnifies Jesus Christ and shrinks us. That's what we need. We live by the words that come from his mouth. And if you're a Bible Christian this morning, you are sitting and surveying this great achievement of Jesus Christ that he purged our sins, and you are filled with wonder and love for him. So, what does God want you to do this morning? God wants you to do nothing. Absolutely nothing. I don't want you to get out of your seats. If Jesus was here, I'd say come to him, but he's not. The word is nigh you. It's in your heart, it's in your ears, it's in your mind, it's the word of faith that you've been hearing. I don't want you to be baptized, I don't want you to join the church, I don't want to make you to make any resolutions from now on, you come into the evening service as well, and you come into the prayer meeting as well. I don't want you to think of anything that you've got to do. that you're going to be more religious from now on. I don't want that. I want you to sit. I want you to sit absolutely still. I don't want you to move. 
I don't want you to start making decisions now about the future is going to be different and so on. Nothing, nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing, absolutely nothing. I look at the cross. I look at the agony and bloody sweat of the Savior in the darkness under the anathema. Finishing the work he began to save you. I want you to flee from any other refuge and hide in him. You've heard this morning of what Jesus Christ has done all by himself, all his achievements, how he, he by himself purged our sins. He did it all alone. And then he sat down. Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside his powerful blood did once atone. Now it pleads before the throne. He was absolutely satisfied with that. The question is, are you? Are you satisfied with that? Are you totally satisfied with that? Are you completely satisfied with what Jesus Christ did? When you feel your sins and your guilt, ah, but my Savior was the Lamb of God. He took away these sins. When Satan comes and reminds you of, ah, that sin, that one sin, you say, it's forgiven. Because of Jesus Christ. When you fall again for the hundred thousandth time, sins of omission, sins of imagination, sins of thought and word, but Christ by himself purged my sin. you believe what I'm saying? Do you, do you really believe this? Then you're a Christian. Not a very good Christian, perhaps. A limping Christian, a weak Christian. But a Christian, if your faith is as thin as a spider's thread, it's lodged in Jesus Christ alone. Not like a horse, it, it won't break. It'll take you across the bottomless pit. It'll take you across the lake of fire. It will present you faultless. In that great day, before him who has loved you and brought the gospel to you and given you a heart that's now settled on Jesus only. You've left it all with Jesus long ago. You know, when a man is drowning and the lifeguard goes out to rescue him, he doesn't say to the man, now look, there, there's the shore. I'll point you in the right direction, swim to that shore. He doesn't say those things. Of course he doesn't. He says, don't struggle. 
do nothing. And he holds him up, his head above the water, and with the other powerful arm, he swims and saves him. I don't want you to move until you have settled this matter of your relationship with God this morning, that it is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, alone, that your hopes of salvation rest. I want you to sit. I don't want you to breathe. I want to purge that word do from your minds. I never want you to think in terms of doing. Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Be absolutely satisfied with that. Let your conscience be satisfied with it. Let your intellect be satisfied with it. Let your past be satisfied with it. If God is satisfied with what Jesus Christ has done, you can be satisfied with what he has done. This is the fact. I, the chief of sinners, am. That's the fact. But Jesus died for me. That's the gospel. The world is full of religions. And all the religions say, do, 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 do. Pray, pray, pray. Give, give, give. Go to the temple. Go to the mosque. Give, give, give. Do. That's what they, they say. Christ says, sit. Look to Jesus and what he is and what he has done. And be satisfied with that. Look and live, my brother. And neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. The dying thief said, don't forget me. A good prayer. Don't forget me. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Look to God, for he abundantly pardons. For he has by himself purged our sins and now is seated at the right hand of Almighty God. Come to him just as you are. Coming to him is when the Holy Spirit takes the words you've heard and applies them to your conscience and your understanding and your affections and gives you an assurance that there's mercy for you and draws you.
Come on now, come, come, come to me, he says. And then, uh, then, be steadfast. And then, be unmovable. And then, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For that work is never in vain. Working for the Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us never leaves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've brought us here again today to hear of the wonderful achievements of your blessed Son, our Saviour, the Lamb of God, who by himself has purged all our sins away. We can hardly believe it. How wonderful. You saw us before we were saved. You've seen since we've been saved how we've limped along. How wonderful your mercy and your love, your kindness to us. You've kept us until this moment and reassured us again that though our sin is abundant, far more abundant is your grace, is your mercy in Jesus Christ. God, that everyone here, the youngest child, the oldest person who is here, shall today begin to sit and look and wonder and praise what the Saviour has done. We ask it to his glory.